Congratulations, world. Your latest play is a great success. The whole of London's talking about you. There is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. one thing in the world worse than being witty, and that is not being witty. <laughs> I wish I had said that. Oh, you will ask her, you will. <laughs> Your Majesty, have you met James McNeil Whistler? Yes, we play squash together. There is only one thing worse than playing squash together, and that is playing it by yourself. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. You did ask her, you did. <laughs> I've got to get back up the palace. Your Majesty is like a big jam donut with cream on the top. Beg your pardon? Um. <laughs> it was one of Whistler's. I never said that. You did, James, you did. Uh, really, what I meant was that, that uh, like a donut, um, your uh, arrival gives us pleasure and your departure only makes us hungrier for more. <laughs> uh, your Highness, you're also like a stream of bat spit. What? It was one of wilds, one of wilds. It's sodding was not! Be <laughs> sure! I, I merely meant, Your Majesty, that you shine out like a shaft of gold when all around is dark. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Your Majesty is like a dose of clap. Before you arrive, is pleasure, and after is a pain in the dark. What? One assured. One assured. You bastard. Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. Welcome to our third B-Sides episode, where we take a look at the films that just couldn't make the cut when it came to putting our trilogies together. Not good enough. I just want to get that clear. Before you read off the titles, <laughs> these are inferior to what we selected for our months. <laughs> What better way to talk about stuff that's inferior than the 1964 film Dr. Strangelove by the so-so director, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick? Hello? Uh, hello, De hello, Dimitri. Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. Yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. <laughs> now then, Dimitri, you know how... We've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And... Uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes 
to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. Um, I want to start off by mentioning the Oscar Wilde sketch from Monty Python. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but... Nerd. <laughs> I, I love it. It starts off in Oscar Wilde's residence with a bunch of other uh, a brainy individuals uh, uh, like... Uh, George Bernard Shaw, or there, uh, the the Prince of England, I think, uh, congratulates Oscar Wilde. Uh, Your latest play is a great success. The whole of London is talking about you. And Oscar Wilde responds, Your Highness, there's only one thing in the world that's worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. And so the whole party starts to laugh, but the laughter goes on for like 10 seconds, like way too long, because, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of the joke, I guess. Uh, anyway, I find it really funny. The prince responds, very witty, wild, very, very witty. Um, James Whistler, uh, who's played by John Cleese, says, there's only one thing in the world worse than being witty, and that is not being witty. Everyone starts laughing. And uh, Oscar Wilde gets really annoyed and goes, I wish I had said that. <laughs> and, then, and then Whistler responds, you will, Oscar, you will. Anyway, it goes on like this. It goes on and on like this. And I think it's just hysterical. So does uh, Trilogy in Theory. Our listeners are like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> You're emulating so, your heroes very well, Webb. <laughs> I show this sketch to people who maybe have not been introduced to Monty Python, and I look at them, and I'm like, like I'm trying not to like giggle my way through it as they are completely stone faced. Like, why are you forcing this upon me? <laughs> and I think I get it now. My most recent rewatch of Doctor Strangelove was probably one of those individuals who, like, I think at least I kind of looked at Strangelove this time around as this is humorous, but I'm not. My belly isn't just like you know hurting. Like you know, my sides aren't uh, splitting. You're one of those people. I think I that. am, and I I feel like I used to be not. I feel like I used to be one of those individuals who just laughed, like guffawed at this film, and I didn't this time around. Did you? Hmm. I don't know if I ever did. If I'm being honest, I mean, I'm a, uh, I guess I'm a simpleton, uh, blue collar, <laughs> and then maybe it's just when George C. Scott fell down. That I was like, that's it. America's Funniest <laughs> Home Videos. That's the ticket. <laughs> the man fell over. <laughs> One of the the medium's greatest actors. I just want to see him fall down and then continue the take. And I enjoyed it so much that I read up that that was actually an accident. But he just kept going because there was no cut. And then Kubrick, I like to think that me and him are on the same page as far as humor. I was like, I also liked watching that man fall down. We're leaving that in. That's the take <laughs> we're using. Um, so, I mean, I think both of you are just like, we want man getting hit in the groin with football. That's, that's what you want. I get it. It's, it's hard. It's hard to top somebody like falling over and then they were, they didn't mean to. It's, and you know, what's funny about George C. Scott is that he's so damn captivating throughout this film. Whereas like Peter Sellers is working his ass off playing all these multiple roles, like three roles. He's commanding the screen with all of these three roles. And he can't quite keep up with George C. Scott. Everything that George C. Scott says and does in this film is pretty excellent. I will give him that. Especially that entire, not quite a tirade, but he lists off the things that they can do. Uh, and so when you talked about end of the world speeches, specifically which one were you discussing? I feel like we can point to a number of them, but that was my favorite one. <laughs> Wait, are you talking about when he's trying to sell the rest of the American government that they are basically pot committed to nuclear yes. war. So yes. let's look at this in the positive light on all the things we can accomplish now that our hands been forced. Yeah. 
where he's like, we can get, we can escape out of this with only twenty million dead, and I, I love the way he depending sells on the breaks, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, that would be one. Uh, I think even the you know, the the end of the film, spoiler territory, I guess, for this nineteen sixty four film that's about the end of the world, it fit to me. Probably not for our 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 month on end of the world speeches as far as because this is very tongue in cheek positivity and like like George C. Scott as far as talking about millions and tens of millions of people dying just in this country alone. But I it always stuck with me how quickly uh, men in power, as long as their power is not being taken from them, can accept horrible atrocities. And like most dudes, it comes down to. We could really turn this in our favor where we could have a lot of sex with a lot of beautiful women (laughs) (laughs) in this little bunker. Like, they get over the fact that they are going to be living underground for the rest of their days. And it will be many generations before (laughs) anyone sees the sunlight again. But as long as we can bring broads down here to satisfy our needs... that's that's probably what I wanted. Now I I did not want that to take part in our trilogy back in January because I didn't really want to derail it because you know we had George Clooney and he was, you know I felt like it would negate the lessons we learned in Up in the Air about a, a tomcat trying to settle down when we've got the president and all of his cabinet just like feasting their eyes on all this imaginary hypothetical flesh. But yeah, they do spin it as a positive. I mean the film ends. Joyously, as nuclear bombs are going off, like the plans are in place, and that's one of the things I always wanted to when I first saw this movie is like why why can't a film end with the end of the world while everything being destroyed, and this was the first one that did it. I don't want to get into spoiler territory just in case you haven't seen it, but I don't know if I would recommend it anyways. Have you seen Alex Proyas's film, knowing? With Nick Cage. Oh, no, no, I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's actually not that bad. Ebert gave it four stars. Anyways. (laughs) It's another film that ends with uh, uh, the entire world essentially ending. So I thought that was also neat. The second film. It's like... it's a first film since Strange Love to do it. <laughs> wow, that would bold. be a hell of a, a, a bold marketing hook uh, to say <laughs> Strange Love, <laughs> knowing starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, which, <clears throat> in all honesty, we're we're doing a little bit of that. Uh, I guess being the smartasses in the back with <laughs> these three films that we're going to be discussing on this very episode, and the fact that we're saying Kubrick couldn't make the cut in our <laughs> first month of the year. It's fine. We're in good company with Proyas and Cage, whatever. Well, I wanted to touch on, uh, before we get, I guess, too dickish, which, I mean, really, it's it's just going to happen naturally. Do you think this style of comedy is out of favor? Because the, the, now I've not seen it, but I'm just going based on that sort of political humor and that maybe the, the trailer, but like the death of Stalin that came out a few years ago. Um, stuff like that, uh, which I think is the same makers of, uh, in the loop, I believe, which I had seen, which, you know, it's talking about, you know, it's, it's slapstick comedy about <laughs> a war and people that can make decisions that affect, uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, but obviously those, and there are fans of that, um, didn't have the cultural impact that, you know, strange love had. Cause from what I gather, this was popular when it came out. It wasn't some indie darling. It wasn't like, because if, if you mentioned Death of Stalin or In the Loop to your coworkers, I doubt they're going to know what the fuck you're talking about. But Strange Love, at the very least, they may, you know, I think most people may know uh, just like the Oscar clip kind of stuff where it's like, oh, the guy that's riding the, the bomb with the cowboy hat, that sort of thing. Yes, I think the film at the very worst lives on with some of those iconic images. I feel like the political humor, it, it the political humor in this film absolutely w- doesn't work today at all. I, I guess the, what's the latest political film? Like, Team America? Like, is that does that count as political humor? That's probably the only w- the only way you can get people to go to the movies. Um, you're right, Death of Stalin, uh, In the Loop. No way. There, there's no way that people are going to go in. The interview. Veep, though. Veep was popular, right? You can do it there. It can be like a workplace comedy and mix in politics, but okay, not this, yeah. No. Uh, and 
and I hate to say it, but it, I wonder if that's also a reflection of why I wasn't laughing throughout the film. I think like I <laughs> where's my under- Jim? Where's my Pam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understood that this is a joke. And it's funny because of X, Y, and Z. I'm like breaking down the humor and the joke, but I I still get I'm into the uh, general uh, Ripper here, Sterling Hayden, his obsession with his own sperm still yeah. <laughs> cracks me up the fact that no matter what we're talking about or who's in the room, which in, I guess for most of his part, it's he's just working off of uh, Peter Sellers. Uh, and one of his characters of basically trying to talk this nut job who's got access to the big red button, talking him off the ledge, and he just wants to work the conversation back around to his essence. <laughs> now no one can get his fluids. <laughs> that yeah. tickled me. Well, but did, <laughs> um, maybe that's just the uh, you know the dirty uh, bathroom humor that you know. As a huge fan of Eyes Wide Shut. Kubrick and I both <laughs> share those sensibilities as well. <laughs> and, uh, Kubrick is very much all about the sexual metaphors uh, scattered throughout this film. I mean, th- doesn't the film start with one plane kind of like refueling another? <laughs> and, and it ends with, you know, I, I guess the like the biggest quote unquote orgasm in the in the entire world with the bomb coming and exploding. There's sexual imagery and then obviously the ten to one <laughs> female to men ratio <laughs> that is so there's a lot of that uh, scattered throughout this film. And so maybe the humor of the film is more for me now discussing it rather than enjoying it as as it is. So I, I mean obviously it's it's expertly made it's stanley kubrick of course it, it's going to be well made so uh no no complaints about the film there uh <laughs> i feel bad we just couldn't <laughs> couldn't work it into our trilogy <laughs> but it's a it's a, obviously a great film hello walter make yourself at home mr mill i understand you're kind of late coming in this morning you all right i'm fine Appreciate your concern. What can I do for you, Walter? Don't tell me you came here to pitch me a story. <laughs> That's exactly what I've come to do. It's a good one, too. It's about a writer, sort of. David Kahane. David Kahane? Who's David Kahane? Oh, you met him. Well, I meet a lot of writers. Uh-huh, but this particular writer that you met was murdered last night in the back of the Rialto Theater in Pasadena. Murdered? Well, come to think of it, Pasadena's as good a place to die as any. So what's the story? 25 words or less. Okay. Movie exec calls writer. Writer's girlfriend says he's at the movies. Exec goes to the movies, meets writer, drinks with writer. Writer gets conked and dies in four inches of dirty water. Movie exec is in deep shit. What do you think? Just more than twenty-five words, and it's bullshit. So what's next in our our our, our film failures, as we call these <laughs> three-month celebration of us, <laughs> but also dancing on the grave of those that weren't good enough to be <laughs> official selections? You know, there's <laughs> as I look at this next film, 1992's The Player. Two names popped out at me when you mentioned it. When you mentioned the player, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I had to look this film up. And I saw Robert Altman and Tim Robbins, and I audibly groaned. I was like, oh, God. Now, look here, Sonny Boy. I could have thrown shortcuts your way. I could have given you three hours of Tim Robbins going back with his boy, Bob Altman. So, wait a minute now. So, is this from prior experience with the player or prior experience with those uh two respective i guess artists and their filmographies i haven't seen much of robert altman but i don't think i've seen one film of his and hadn't <laughs> and haven't at some point started nodding off and then the player <laughs> is no different <laughs> granted I, I think i started with gosford park i was like oh murder mystery right on i'm just like oh god this is one of those murder mysteries that that, that suck. Sure i told you before that uh I, I walked out on Gosford Park 
because the <laughs> have I told you this? I, I've told so many people, and I don't know why. Because it's like, how does Gosford Park keep fucking coming up on podcasts? Like I don't, I don't <laughs> know, but I'm like, let me tell you my Gosford Park story. So apologies to the listeners who have followed my uh, podcasting career, such as it is. Uh, dating girl at the time who really wants to see Gosford Park. I see it as stuffy period piece. I don't even know about the murder mystery aspect of it, but it's just servants, the upstairs, downstairs kind of bullshit. Like I don't, I don't want to get into that at all. And, um, I really, really was pushing to see the Mothman prophecy starring Richard. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to watch. And we get in, she's like, no, no, I'm picking this time. You're taking me out. We're doing Gosford Park. And I was such a little shit that I was like huffing and like, you know, in my chair going side to side and just the, doing the Homer Simpson, like, ah, it's so boring like just, <laughs> just that she just threw in the towns like, okay, if you're going to throw a temper tantrum, let's go see Mothman prophecies. Uh, did I take that as an opportunity to, you know, have a little romance or, or I guess just basic decency? No. We were on our way to see Richard Gere and whatever the Mothman was, and I couldn't wait. I was so happy. I think we missed the trailers. That was it. Missed the previews. And I had a blast. I was I was the jerk then, too. I came out of the Mothman. I was like, see, wasn't that great? Didn't I steer you in the right direction? I actually dug the Mothman prophecies as well. I absolutely would choose that over <laughs> Gosford Park. I'm right there with you, buddy. Um, and then with Tim Robbins... I don't know. I, I just can't believe he continues to get work. I was watching uh, War of the Worlds for the first time, the Steven Spielberg one, uh, and I was enjoying myself. Uh, and bam, Tim Robbins right in the middle is a crazy guy. And I got so upset right away. Uh, and boy, that last, the fi- the way that movie ended. God, don't explain the movie to me at the end. Are you talking about War of Everything's the Worlds? Everything's great. Yeah, what, what did I say? Oh, that's, well, I mean, that's... That's not Tim Robbins' fault. He's not. He's nowhere even around for the. No, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware. He's still in the basement, right? Or dead? I can't remember. Well, what what about Shawshank? You know, Mystic River. What about those? Those are. I'm looking at his. <laughs> you're gonna love this. His known for on IMDb, the player, Shawshank, Mystic River, Howard the Duck. Is the fourth <laughs> one on his known for? <laughs> did you did you submit this? <laughs> <laughs> well, like any anybody who is going to look at a, a film that's labeled as, you know, the greatest film of all time, and I'm looking at the IMDb list specifically, I think, well, I'm not looking at it, but I'm pretty sure it's still number one, and I remember watching Shawshank and being like, why is this number, why is Godfather below the Shawshank Redemption when I first got into films and, and started looking at that list? Uh, because I was legitimately expecting something better than The Godfather. <laughs> the Shawshank wasn't it. You have such faith in IMDb humanity. <laughs> well, they say it's better than The Godfather. <laughs> I'm in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think maybe um, uh, Bull Durham. I think he was all right in that. I mean, but that movie is good for other reasons, though. Uh, and I've never seen Mystic River so, uh, and I know that's probably one I need to because I think Dennis Lehane wrote the original book. He may have written the screenplay as well. I'm not sure. Definitely the book, but the player. Yeah, I like uh, Robbins here because I like, first off, I, I would think that you would enjoy it because if you have an unnatural hatred for Tim Robbins, then he's playing super douche here. <laughs> There's he nothing is. likable about this guy. And boy, does he, he embraces it. Not only does he embrace being an asshole, but he embraces being <laughs> unhinged for most of the runtime. Like he's an asshole that's pissed off that someone has interrupted him being an asshole. And he takes, <laughs> he takes that as a great affront. Like, Hey, I made a nice life for myself, making everyone around me miserable. And now someone's making me miserable. That's not fair. <laughs> you talk about me throwing a temper tantrum over the Mothman prophecies. Tim Robbins <laughs> is throwing a two hour temper tantrum here after he kills someone. <laughs> like he just, but he does get away so with frustrated. it all. <laughs> yeah, and I will say that this is very much in line with uh, what we originally wanted to go with, uh, where it was for the love of movies. This is very much a movie uh, that is paying 
homage and, and kind of satirizing the concept of Hollywood and what kind of goes on behind the scenes, which I'll, I'll give it credit for in that regard. But this is exactly the opposite of, of Get Shorty. This is give high whatever <laughs> the greatest film like I, we ever covered on this podcast as we've already established <laughs> get shorty is the pinnacle of cinema <laughs> it's glorious kubrick, uh, i had such a good kubrick, time with Altman, it and... you get a b-side barry sonnenfeld get shorty <laughs> you're gonna be the central focus of that month <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a handful of directors. Uh, Sonfeld, uh, is it like Stephen Frears? Who Who's the guy that directed uh, Sphere Levinson? <laughs> like, there's this troupe of directors that have been consistently working for a long time, and I feel like they don't have any identity whatsoever. I don't know how they got in the game, but good for them. They're still working. Like, Frankenheimer, I think he's another one. You mentioned Reindeer Games not too long ago, and I was like, boy, he had, he's had quite a filmography, <laughs> yet I can't identify one aspect Thank you, of his Webb. filmmaking I'm, I'm i'm trying to defend uh kubrick and altman and uh the only parts i liked of strange love were when they're talking about semen uh and how many women they're gonna bang <laughs> and now you're outing me as someone that talks regularly about reindeer games <laughs> like this is a pretty good movie <laughs> worth five bucks <laughs> yeah no one's gonna listen to me anyhow I found the player to be pretty unpleasant for this entire runtime. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> Tim Robbins, you're right, the character is playing a super douche, uh, Griffin Mill. And he never gets his. You know, it ultimately ends up working out uh, for everybody uh, involved, um, except for. Uh, poor uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. I think he's the only one that really gets screwed in this movie. Mm, I don't think so. I think he's, uh... <laughs> he dies. Okay, don't get me wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> I <clears throat> I see him as, uh... Did you ever watch the, uh... And I shouldn't bring him up because he's <clears throat> canceled now. Like, he's yet, just like as of a week ago. Richard Stanley. Do you, do you, are you aware of him? Kind of like fucking failure of a director who he's the one that got fired off Island of Dr. Moreau, like in the mid nineties. And then just now, like in the like last five years started making movies again after being in exile. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, something a week ago came out. He's got a horrible history with women, abuse, uh, domestic violence, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I'm only using him based on the character I saw in the documentary about, the failure of Island of Dr. Moreau, where he just was someone that was just a jackass that did not live in the real world, who is given the, he's given a movie that costs millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars with Val Kilmer coming off of Batman, Marlon Brando. And he didn't understand why, if he just didn't feel like, the impulse to shoot anything that day, why he just couldn't just stay in this house. If the artistic impulse wasn't there, like removing all practical elements of shooting a movie on other people's dime. <laughs> it's unfair because this fictional character played by Vincent D'Onofrio, David Kahane predates <laughs> the great events of the Island of Dr. Moreau, which we all can't go a day without remembering <laughs> that misfire. But the impression I get, and I don't know if it's purposeful from Altman, is initially I think, yeah, Griffin is an ass, company man, he's producing terrible art. But then he meets this guy who's so abrasive and is just, like, not interested at all at going along or just seeing, like, getting his shot, getting his foot in the door without just lecturing this studio executive about what an idiot he is. And I'm like, you don't. You don't deserve this opportunity. <laughs> I'm not saying he deserves death. <laughs> but <laughs> what I am saying, Webb, is <laughs> he perhaps has greater impact on the events of art that will be created. Because he seems like a guy that wants to talk about making art instead of actually making it. Because to make it would mean that he has to compromise and collaborate. And I have no, no time for that. Do you think this film works, though, as a comedy or... I guess the scathing satire, I don't know, or as a thriller or as a mystery, what genre would you put this film under 
giving it like the most opportunity for success. It's inside baseball, but perhaps not inside enough for it to be scathing. I don't think it's scathing. I think it's it's all we're having a good time poking fun at our profession. Not much different than a. Uh, I mean, it's better than like an Academy Awards like monologue from a comedian, but it has just that amount of bite. I don't. I don't think it's like deep cuts here. Um, I <laughs> I will say that. Um, because of that, I think it has more general appeal to audiences like who don't like, I think they could just get into it from a uh, more Hitchcockian perspective of Griffin mill. He has fallen into that trap of killing the wrong man. So you're just getting to see the screws being put to him throughout the whole thing. And will he get away with it or not? Strangely getting interrogated by a very, sexually charged detectives played by Lyle Lovett and Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> like, just, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of scenes like that. I think I enjoy it more because I, and I thought you would, uh, not that I knew you hated Tim Robbins, but I enjoy not only seeing him sweat, <laughs> but him start to yell at people. I enjoy him, his mud bath being interrupted saying that he needs to go stand in the lineup. Like I enjoy just how insane he looks, uh, most of the time. Uh, so no, I wouldn't say it's scathing, but I think it's, it's enough to where people who, you know, cause otherwise you run the risk of it being an ultimate time capsule. If it's too pointed, yeah, it's going to be incredibly dated right. in that way. So I think it still has general sort of entertainment appeal of just like a, a guy, can he get away with this crime? That sort of thing. Last thing I want to talk to you about, uh, for the player, what did, what did you think of that sex scene where he got like, confesses to the murder, which I thought that was Hot. odd. <laughs> <laughs> We mentioned this about pornography last time. <laughs> it's like you keep building up a resistance, and you got to get weirder and weirder, <laughs> and that's what does it for Griffin Mill. The only only way I can get it up now is if I kill Vincent D'Onofrio. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Robert Altman wanted. <laughs> Welcome to your nightmare, bitch. Looks like some sort of legally safe knockoff of an 80s horror character with miniature swords for fingers instead of knives. I'm Scary Terry! You can run, but you can't hide, bitch! We have to escape into someone else's dreams, Morty! This again? Oh man, it looks like we've hit dream bedrock here, Morty. Oh jeez, Rick. Whoa, 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 this isn't good. Nothing but fear from here on out, bitch. Oh! Holy crap, Morty. He can travel through dreams. He can travel through dreams. We're so screwed. Buckle up, bitch. Oh! Man, he sure says bitch a lot. You can run, but you can't hide, bitch. Hold on, Morty. You know what? He keeps saying we can run, but we can't hide. I say we try hiding. But that's the opposite of what... Yeah, well, since when are we taking this guy's advice on anything? Hey, you know what? You got a really good point there, Rick. Like, if the truth was that we could hide, it's not like he'd be sharing that information with us, you know? Uh, I think it's a good idea, Rick. Worst case scenario, we're back to running. Wow, you know what? I mean, it looks like we could have just hid this whole time. Boy, Rick, that was some good thinking. Thanks, Morty, yeah. Nice to be on the same page every once in a while. You can run, but you can't hide! Oh, this is perfect, Morty. Look at that. He's getting sleepy. Just a little bit longer before he calls it a day. That's when we make our move. For our final film, the monster mashup, Freddy vs. Jason... I, <laughs> I've probably seen this film more than I've seen Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> and you're on the record that. of having never seen the player and disliking it. So here we go. I'm I'm pretty much the worst, but I do like Monty Python. So I don't know where we. Um, <laughs> Freddy vs Jason uh, was an interesting film because I don't really care much at all for the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. I think the first film is. 
important because it it started off as a, a ripoff of Carpenter's Halloween and ended up being kind of interesting by the end. And then everything else has just been like, let's just kill these teenagers. And that's the appeal for the people who like it. They don't watch it for any catharsis uh, besides just watching people die in interesting ways and watching the great Tom Savini do some really, really wonderful uh, special effects. Freddie has a more interesting filmography. Um, I actually really do like The Third Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the Dream Warriors, and I think that one has a bit of a cult following because Wes Craven kind of came back to write the script for it and it's got some really gnarly kills the uh welcome to prime time bitch a lot of that freddy uh, uh iconic dialogue is is present and then you know it kind of goes up and down in the series so i never had any inclination to get these two together but like all comic book fans you know they want to see the their big mythic heroes on screen battling one another what are your thoughts on the freddy franchise the jason franchise is this something that you were at all was this even on your radar when it came out i've never seen a single one of the uh the entries of Friday wow even the first nightmare, nightmare? nope <clears throat> never any interest in them i have seen the uh remake i guess that came out and I don't really have much in the way of memories of it. Uh, the the guy that played uh, Warsack, Jackie, is it Jackie Earl Haley? Jackie, played? Jackie Earl Haley. Okay. Uh, I saw that one. I have no real memory of it other than coming out of theater saying, I didn't care for that. <laughs> so yeah. I am by no means. But the strange thing is, and I think this contributed to my distaste for this first time around, is I'm pretty sure that I watched this in theaters which is strange considering that I've not seen any of the prior entries. So I really don't care uh, about Freddy versus Jason. I don't care who wins or I'm like, uh, I felt like I was a referee watching. Cause my buddies that I went with were big into, and like they, you know, one was into nightmare on Elm street. One was into Friday 13th. And they, I don't know if I'm the guest on this, like really nerdy crossfire where it's like, I have no opinion on either. <laughs> they both stink in my eyes. Um, but I remember being pretty fucking upset that first off, it takes a while for the two to even, I don't know if it's like 45, 50 minutes before there's maybe the first like scuffle between the two of them. And the other thing was I wanted an actual winner. And I felt like the, you can feel in the fights that even though I guess new line had the the rights to both at the time, I, I did some reading where Paramount had I think had the Friday 13th franchise and then they let it lapse or something. So it's weird to me that, you know, this isn't like Marvel and uh, DC getting together and like, you know, Superman and Captain America have to be, they have to fight to a draw or something just so we don't impact the IP of the other, but it feels that way. It feels like we don't want to upset the fan base one way or the other here and declare a winner and I remember that bothering me. Look, I'll just keep the theme of the episode. This is not the theme that's been chosen for these three B-sides, uh, but just reveling and our perversions. I was just happy to see boobs on screen again. I was just, I just felt like, wow, this, this feels, this feels more like a time capsule than the player does <laughs> seeing that on screen <laughs> in the slasher of things. Cause this is like totally died out. And yeah, I know how that makes me come across and, I also read that one of the actors, they had to have a body double because... I was just going to say. <laughs> well, no, I, I was just real upset. when I, And I was thrilled, <laughs> as most, you know, teenagers who first saw this movie to see a boob shot. And I was so unhappy later in life when I found out that it was a body double and not the actual actress. It felt like I wasn't watching that character's boobs. I felt like I was watching something completely different and uh, <laughs> real upset about it all. <laughs> so that's one of the things, one of the defining moments of this. Anytime I put it on and it's not going to be often, I assure you. <laughs> that's the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. As to More than strange love. not having... <laughs> As to not having a winner, at least the two of them didn't end up teaming together to fight something else, which is kind of what happens in these versus movies anyhow. Um, At least they're actually there to, like, kind of beat each other up. You mentioned that you haven't really seen much of either franchise. So 
did the backstories of either character was it a limiting factor for your <laughs> i don't want to use the word enjoyment here <laughs> but did it affect your viewing at all or is it just through uh, uh, osmosis that you were able to know that okay well freddy krueger kills people in people's dreams and uh, jason just kills people with a machete for the most part i i would say um I'm guessing in my younger years, I was probably more leaning uh, on Freddy's side of things. Uh, and that's with no favoritism to the quality of the uh, the previous entries in their respective series. But um, mainly because, you know, Jason, he's, you know, like Michael Myers, like you just, he's just the, the, the walking thing that, you know, bullets, knives, set him on fire, whatever. It's kind of boring. I mean, I understand that it's, it's you know they define the the genre in that way, and it's it's a staple. Um, that's their superpowers. They're just sort of. I mean, that's the reason something like it follows exists, right? To kind of play off of that thing that just is is always coming and is unstoppable. But uh, as much as I maybe respect Freddy having some sort of rule book they has to play by that it has to be while they're sleeping has to, they have to have prior knowledge of them has to be in their dreams they kind of throw that out the window because it doesn't make too much sense that when he's brought into the real world that he becomes this like wolverine like fighter with jason because <laughs> <laughs> me as an old man even though i like that i was like watching it now i was getting really annoyed with freddy just constantly running his fucking mouth and i'm thinking man i'm never gonna watch one of these movies if he just is like jawing the whole time like he's like the guy on the like pickup basketball that you're like dude we're just like playing a fucking game here like can you just get on with it like just stop running your mouth um i really was looking forward to on this watch because i'd forgotten most of the film i even forgot the nudity um i was really looking forward to when he realizes he's in the real world that uh he's been he's been dragged into it um you know the the ultimate plan right at least in it follows they had a plan based around a swimming pool but uh, and some appliances here, uh, the main girl's hand just catches on fire. <laughs> so it's just through happenstance. She drags him into our reality. I was looking forward to Jason just beating the shit out of him just <laughs> after all that nonsense and just getting wrecked. It doesn't happen that way. Um, but I think just due to uh, really poor dialogue you mentioned the one of the lines but yeah he does he calls women bitches and whores a lot here he's really playing up that like incel sort of nerd kind of thing like we're not we're not far from like joker here was like jesus christ dude like if this man has just gotten a girlfriend or something maybe at one point in his life and on that note <laughs> i shouldn't laugh but i really enjoyed during one of the uh Zack snyder's nightmare sequences with uh jason and our main character of Lori. That she's trying to save Jason, who's drowning, while the camp counselors, you know, basically Freddy, are, like, fucking fully clothed on, like, the front porch. And when she goes to, like, reach a hand down to this this freak show boy who's being picked on and thrown in the water, she's like, ooh, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't save him because he's ugly. <laughs> So are these main characters likable? Should I care if they're killed or not? Because even when she knows I'm going here with a purpose to get Jason on our side, he's still too ugly to let live. He's <laughs> he's, he's Vin Vincent D'Onofrio all over again. <laughs> oh, I I don't want to defend uh, the you know Freddie calling women bitches and whores, but that is kind of a staple in his films. Uh, it was made fun of in Rick and Morty uh, right off the bat. I think like the second or uh, third episode. I will say that while I don't have much love for either of these franchises at this point in my life, I do always go back to, if I'm feeling interested, like, oh, maybe I'll go back and watch this specific film. Or not. There are two documentaries, and both, uh, judging by your reaction to this, film i don't recommend them to you but if you're ever wondering uh, about either of them i would say go through the nightmare on elm street documentary called never sleep again i actually own this for some reason I, I, it was on oh. sale on itunes and i bought it and yeah like, and the uh what's the other one is it crystal lake memories that's correct yes I would say if you have any inclination to know anything about these films or like maybe watch one don't 
but watch these documentaries. Both one is like four hours, the other is like six, but they're so entertaining uh, because they go through the films, they go through like all the kills and the story behind them. Uh, but yeah, I would say uh, those documentaries are absolutely worth watching. There is some good stuff here. Uh, spoiler alert: I love how one of the, I guess, uh, Destiny's uh, children here gets <laughs> removed from the film. <laughs> She like is uh attacking Freddy's uh package or lack thereof, his uh choice of, of weapon not being falcon enough, and then just gets wrecked, just like flung into a tree. And that's it is look look, it's, the thing I dislike about these type of movies is that I guess we're supposed to laugh at the kills because we don't have any investment in the people being attacked. Usually one or two. So in this case, uh, Monica Kina, who I don't, I feel like she was a face around the early 2000s, but I'm struggling to, okay, she was on Dawson's Creek. Maybe that was it. But I'm like, oh yeah, she was in those like teen movies at the time. And then I don't know what happened to her. Um, she apparently did not have a good experience on this. She said she just did it for the money, which I appreciate the honesty. Um, and then uh, the girl from Ginger Snaps, who had the body double, the betrayal with you, she really detested uh, Ronnie Yu just for that. Uh, there's going to be no nudity. And then he like kept trying to pressure her into going naked, which just... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the oh, that's kind of shame. icky quality of us. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, you know you're, I guess you're going for the, the truth of the character's journey into nudity in a shower. And when I heard it was a body double, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's better off. But, you know, it, it did raise an interesting question where it's like, if an actor signs up for a part and says, look, I'm not going naked. It's a slasher movie. I'm a female. Uh, just giving you a heads up. I'm not going to take the role from going naked. And then not only is she pressured into it, but then her character will be naked at some point. Like, I don't know how I'd feel about that if I was an actor where I was like, I, I took a stance saying this is what I'm comfortable with. Even having a body double attempt to portray me to trick people into thinking I was nude. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. So that's a, uh, that's why Freddy versus Jason sits alongside Altman and Kubrick. Cause it has all these <laughs> problematic choices. <laughs> Altman, Kubrick, run you. <laughs> I did not know about her stance on that, and had I known that, I, I absolutely, um, that's the case. If you made that uh, kind of stipulation that you were not going to go nude, and then you're being pressured, that's horrible. So um, I'm, I'm 100% on, uh, Catherine Isabel is her name, I'm 100% on her side, uh, her ickiness. I, I, I'm icky too You are now. 100% wrong, uh, because Robert Altman, I actually did watch Shortcuts this week, because for another podcast... Uh, for Zack Snyder's Justice League, I said, how about we just do shortcuts instead and label it a Zack Snyder Justice League episode and just rope people into discussion <laughs> of shortcuts. <laughs> and one of the bonus features, uh, you'll never watch it, and you'll certainly not watch this interview. It's just a conversation between Altman and Tim Robbins. So it's apparently your own Zack Snyder Batman nightmare hellscape. Is that, <laughs> that conversation between these two filmmakers. Uh, but he's asked about in shortcuts in particular, there's a lot of nudity, but rarely is anyone having sex. It's like people walking out of a shower or walking to their kitchen, uh, someone changing their clothes. It's, it's, it's a really strange choice. And it actually, he, he says in the interview that he, he doesn't force actors to, but he kind of always suggests, he's like, Hey, I'm, I want to do the same. Like Francis McDormand was the example he used. He's like, um, I think I want to have a scene where your character's naked. There's nothing sexual, but I just want you, like, you think you're alone in the house, you get out of the shower, and you're going down a hallway and naked, and then there's someone in the room that kind of catches you off guard. And she's like, well, I've never been nude on film. I've never been asked to be naked before. Let me think about it. And he's like, yeah, just, you know, whatever. We'll just play with it. And he said the reason he did it is because nudity is such a big deal for not only the actors obviously doing it, but the viewers that they think, okay, if someone's naked, it has to be for a reason. It has to be to titillate me. Uh, or another character. <clears throat> and so when someone is just doing it to go like get laundry or just put on clothes, it it throws viewers off and adds uh, a realness to it. It says, this is the, the reality. Like, no, we're in your world. Like this is the reality of the world where there's nude flesh just going from A to B place to place to get ready for your work day. Far afield from Ronnie Yu, who's like really trying to force young, attractive actors, like please be naked in my movie. Cause there's, there's no reason <laughs> <laughs> for, for, 
uh, the opening sequence where a woman is nude. She's getting ready to go swimming. But man, slasher movies. People are always, they're always just going to the lakes completely naked. No one's got a swimsuit, nothing. And, and the nudity is used for titillation in these slasher movies. And very rarely am I ever titillated. But if Freddy vs. Jason especially, like there's like maybe two or three, maybe two and a half instances uh, of uh, any kind of nudity. And uh, there's nothing sexy about any of it. Um, I feel like if you want to have nudity in your movie, it should be... It should be with a donkey. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it it should be there. I think if it's comedic, I think that works. Something like Sideways, seeing the naked man and that penis like slap against the car door here's some, window. Here's some uh, cold reality for you <laughs> coming your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I, and then uh, you know Paul Giamatti's face as he's watching these two individuals have sex. I, I think like that is really funny. I think nudity is used really well there. Um, very rarely, uh, uh, you have to be a really good director for it to be titillating at all. Like I, just because there's nudity doesn't mean like I'm not fucking thirteen anymore, man. You know, and and even in now in this day and age, the internet being so available to everybody. <laughs> Like I, sorry, it's not, and we still make such a I big like, we as in uh, you're you're letting filmmakers off the hook on <laughs> displaying nudity in some sort of tasteful way because you're like I don't need it. I got fucking porn on every screen. <laughs> like, don't waste my time. <laughs> Just put them in capes and spandex. <laughs> if I want to see nipples, I've got that bookmarked right here. <laughs> Thousands of them. <laughs> Well, if it's natural to the story, I, I have no problem. But I, I, we, as like a society, have stated that you know any kind of nudity is is no good, uh, and it immediately, immediately get the R or NC seventeen. Just trying to make a case for Altman, and you're like, it's outdated. The internet killed Altman's take on nudity in films. We have no, the internet, respect... Bob. <laughs> I, I I respect Robert Altman's like decision, I guess, or like want to do that for his movies. I don't know if they're making the movies. I feel like he's just doing it to troll the audience, though. I don't know if it's in in, in service of his films. <laughs> I love That's that, the... I love that you're taking it as an aggressive act on you. <laughs> don't tease me, Altman. <laughs> of having like a three-way battle between these two mm -hmm. and Ash from the Evil Dead. There was an idea where uh, in the ending, like both of them are going to get sucked into hell and then Pinhead from Hellraiser is going to be like, calm down, you two. I don't know what he would have said. But... <laughs> <laughs> calm down in hell. <laughs> hell is a quiet place here. Show some respect. It's like a library, basically. <laughs> I like your version of hell is like the Alamo draft house. No talking, no texting. <laughs> <laughs> Just appreciate hell. 